Welcome to the EP Edit. This is a podcast dedicated to topics of interest in the field of cardiac electrophysiology. I'm Dr. Bradley Knight, clinical editor of EP Lab Digest. In this episode, we're featuring a discussion on the role of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and deep learning in cardiac electrophysiologists. Dr. Arun Sridhar and Dr. Patrick Boyle from the University of Washington will be discussing current applications, future directions, as well as their recent article in EP Lab Digest. Dr. Boyle is an assistant professor in the Department of Bioengineering at the University of Washington, and Dr. Sridhar is a cardiac electrophysiologist and assistant professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine. We thank both of them for joining us today. Hi, my name is Patrick Boyle, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Bioengineering here at the University of Washington. Hi, my name is Arun Sridhar, and I'm a cardiologist and a cardiac electrophysiologist at the University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle. So today we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, we're going to talk about machine learning, and in particular we're going to focus on deep learning, which is sort of a shorthand to talk about deep convolutional neural networks. You know, Arun, you and I have discussed this before as the classic example of a deep neural network is a machine learning tool that can look at pictures of a bunch of different shapes or things and categorize them into different groups. So the big example that people think about is the way we draw numerals. So different people draw the number one and the number two and the number three and so forth in different ways. And one of the earliest and best examples of a convolutional neural network is to train a computer program to be able to recognize that a one is a one, two is a two, three is a three, and so on. The research that we've been working on together, really essentially what we're doing is trying to take ECG strips, so electrocardiogram strips, instead of drawings of numerals, and recognize features that are invisible to the naked eye that would lead us to predict a particular outcome or a particular condition for the patients from whom those ECGs were recorded. And I think something interesting to chat about, Arun, might be how you and I first got into working on this AI-based analysis and what you think is the potential for clinical applications, especially in EP. Yeah, sure. I think uh, AI and machine learning techniques hold a lot of promise in the field of EP and arrhythmia care. We already see that the field is picking up very quickly and rapidly. So there have been a lot of applications looking at arrhythmia detection, arrhythmia localization, and also like ECG interpretation. We have had ECG technology for more than 150 years now. And using AI on ECGs has taught us that we can look at things which were probably invisible to the human eye in the past. So there are uh, applications which have been looked at where they're trying to model clinician-like predictions using an ECG, but also things that probably we cannot see with the naked eye and goes beyond human capability. I think there's a lot to be researched and validated before we bring it to clinical practice. I do want to caution by saying that all of this is purely research at this point, and many of these algorithms have not been deployed in patient care, but at some point, this would be a reality. And I think it's really interesting to contemplate the way that, especially with deep convolution, neural networks, deep learning. The state of the field in 2022 is fascinating to me because you have a real nexus of interest in this. You have the on-ramps to studying this type of AI and to implementing this type of algorithm are so accessible. I remember one of the last things that you and I did together work-wise before the pandemic was went to the American Heart Association scientific sessions in Philadelphia. 
And I was moderating a live poster session about applications of deep learning and research. And four out of the five presenters there were clinicians who were self-taught programmers. You know, they didn't have any formal bachelor's or advanced graduate degrees in computer science. They all had self-taught the tools of the trade, which is something that's relatively straightforward to do. But you do have computer scientists who are really eager and really enthusiastic to explore biomedical applications. And I think what's really special is when groups like ours get together, interdisciplinary research groups. Arun, your lab has always, you know, traditionally, and your research team has made an effort to reach out to engineers and find out what they want to work on. Likewise, my lab has always made a real effort to be as often as possible in the room with working cardiologists. The interdisciplinary nature of this work really needs to be emphasized. And I think it's interesting to contemplate what the future holds for machine learning research as teams like ours become more and more common. Yeah, absolutely. I think you bring up a great point, Patrick. These days, many of the modern gadgets and even gadgets like an Apple iPhone, like they are in- including ways you can build algorithms right into the gadget. And people can build and uh, test algorithm with minimal computer uh, literacy. But, uh, however, I I think like the value of an interdisciplinary collaboration cannot be overemphasized. Like as clinicians, what we do best is take care of the patients and provide the clinical context. And as computer scientists, what you guys do best is build an extremely robust algorithm that can be validated and reproduced. And these kind of clinical collaborations go a long way in building very robust algorithms, which are trustworthy and can ultimately pave the way for clinical applicability. The other interesting thing, Patrick, I've noticed is the use of AI and machine learning algorithms on things which are commonplace these days. There are consumer devices which have become very common, and a lot of these have either obvious or hidden capabilities to monitor heart rhythm and like a human in general, but uh, heart rhythm in particular. And using algorithms to apply it on the consumer electronics creates a way to scale these gadgets into a diagnostic tool. And we have looked at using Apple Watch ECGs and Alive Core ECGs, which are consumer gadgets to see if we can predict atrial fibrillation and detect arrhythmia. We have also like looked at things such as smart speakers to see if we can deploy them to study heart rhythm issues. There is a lot of collaboration that's going to happen between us, but also across many interdisciplinary teams across the country uh, in the next few years. And I think the future is going to be combination of easily accessible consumer devices in combination with the AI algorithms, which can be very powerful diagnostic and therapy monitoring tools. I'm glad you brought up your smart speaker project. I think one of the things that in bioengineering and biomedical engineering departments, one of the things that we emphasize in terms of our pedagogy, in terms of our philosophy of education, is we want our trainees, we want the young engineers who graduate from our programs to be bilingual. We want them to speak the language, the technical language of a traditional engineer, but we also want them to speak the language of the clinic. I don't expect my students to ever be able to necessarily run a clinical trial by themselves, or at least not when they leave the halls of their undergraduate program. But I want them to be able to have a conversation with a clinician. I want them to be familiar with terms like randomization techniques and blinding techniques and understanding the difference between per protocol and intention to treat, things like this. 
And I think likewise, increasingly, as this boomlet of research continues in AI, I think that the expectation is going to arise for medical trainees to be able to converse with engineers about technical things like artificial intelligence and machine learning. Because as you mentioned, I think this is super important to emphasize, you know, we need to do a lot of due diligence to make sure that these things are accurate and to make sure that when we deploy something, we've, we've made a good faith effort to make sure that the results that we're reporting are as honest as possible and are telling the tale of the scientific work in the most accurate way possible. And I think our recent paper in the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal is a good example of that. This was a paper where we used deep convolutional neural networks to try and see if we could predict adverse cardiovascular outcomes from the intake ECGs of patients with COVID-19 who were hospitalized. Our preliminary findings looked pretty promising, but ultimately what we ended up concluding at the end of the day was that the capability of these deep networks to predict these outcomes was relatively modest. We were excited to find that, you know, when we compared the deep neural network findings to the predictions from conventional statistical models, we were on the same order of magnitude, relatively comparable predictive power. But you don't see a lot of groups running to the nearest publication to scream from the rooftops about, yeah, this is a pretty ho-hum result. I'm proud of what we were able to do with that paper, which is really show that at the end of the day, after a couple of solid years of really difficult work, we ended up with, I wouldn't call it a negative result, I call it an interesting result. It's a finding. It's something that can propel the field forward and help us better understand what machine learning can do and what it's ill-equipped to do. Yes, absolutely, Patrick. A couple of thoughts on that. Yes, our study had pretty modest result in terms of the ability of the neural network to detect COVID-19 to actually prognosticate COVID-19 using a single intake EKG. But we also have to keep in mind that we were giving it pretty sparse data. We were only giving one spot-on ECG in the entire span of the patient's admission. And it took uh, very limited data and the point-of-care data from the emergency room to make that prediction, which was actually comparable to the conventional statistical model, which used a lot more information about the patient. So yes, it is possible that there might not be a signal that we can potentially detect, or it is also possible that by giving the neural networks more data, we might be able to make the model a bit more robust. When I say more robust, more more clinically applicable in the end. The other problem that we have in AI literature is the the publication bias that is true for any, any other field. So when you see a lot of AI papers getting published with a very good AUC, you have to wonder if there are an equal or more number of papers which never get published where the AI was not able to predict. And this is very important to recognize. And I'm very glad that Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal picked our paper and emphasized this because what they did was they said, these guys have done a good job with building the model. They've done a good job with collecting the data and creating a generalizable data from different countries. And here we are, we have a modest result, but this should be published and this should be available for people to read and learn from. And I think that's a very important take on part of them. And I think it's a very important message. So one step closer towards reducing the publication bias and one step closer for us to understand the limitations of AI and what is it that we can practically achieve and what we can't. I strongly agree. I think that everyone loves to say how much they love publishing negative results and love the idea of publishing negative results, or at least maybe not negative results, but sobering results, results that make you think twice. But I think as applications of machine learning move forward, and as one of the very first caveats that you raised was, these are still research projects. These are not ready for prime time in clinical applications, but we really hope they will be someday. 
and, and I sincerely hope they will be. I'm not a skeptic when it comes to the widespread application of these. And I think, in fact, something that's really emerging you know, in the bioengineering community, and I think in the research community on the whole globally, is trying to find ways for our research to lift up communities that have been historically disenfranchised, try to improve equity. Our students in bioengineering are tuned in to that. And that's not just unique to Seattle or Washington. My colleagues all over the world are telling me that they're seeing the same thing. And so if we think about situations like remote locations, and this doesn't have to be talking about low middle income countries, this could be rural areas of our own state or parts of our own city right here at home where, you know, it might not be so easy for someone to get an MRI scan or it might not be so easy for someone to get a specialized test. And so if we can find ways to use the technology to leverage the technology and try and develop better screening systems so that we can deploy resources, especially when the resources are limited, I think that that could be an incredibly powerful application of this technology. But the flip side of that coin is that we have to make darn sure that we're doing it right and we're being very careful. We're dotting our I's and crossing our T's. So I think one of the things we wanted to talk about, Arun, was the emerging meta technology, these sort of edge systems and these systems that are going to allow centers like ours to access the data at other institutions in a secure and anonymous manner. Did you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. One of the big problems with this field uh, and similar fields in general is that when you take uh, all these algorithms that are being built, most of them until now have been focused on data gathered from a single institution or a couple of institutions. We sort of uh, broke that barrier with our COVID ECG paper where we collected data from five different countries and uh, we analyzed the data from five different, completely different populations and we made it a bit more generalizable, but that needs to be done more. One of the biggest challenges that we found, Patrick, like when we started this research project was just getting the data from different places that took a long time and making sure that we are within the guidelines of the countries and the European data sharing agreements was a big deal and it took a long time. So if there are ways where institutions can share their data, but not really share their data, and if you are able to deploy an algorithm or a, or even build an algorithm, which remotely using other institutions' data, that, that is a huge step towards generalizability of these algorithms. And, and there are companies which are looking at this, like specifically focused at crossing these barriers of data sharing. And I've heard of a startup from Stanford and also a startup from Mayo, which the basic model is that they create Docker folders in, uh, within institutions where they can run their algorithms remotely without the data ever leaving the institution. Both building of uh, the machine learning algorithms as well as testing them can be done remotely without the data ever crossing hands. I think that is a very interesting development and we have to see where this goes. But if the promise holds, this could be the barrier that we were talking about in terms of data sharing and making algorithms extremely generalizable and validated across countries. Yeah, I think I want to pick up on one of the threads that you raised there, which is when we embarked on our COVID ECG project using machine learning, I never would have anticipated what an outsized proportion of the work would have had nothing to do with the programming. It doesn't have to do with the algorithmic refinement or the validation. It's just challenging to build those databases, especially working with outside hospitals and brokering a data transfer usage agreement. You mentioned the complexities of data sharing between European institutions and American institutions because of the idiosyncrasies of the various jurisdictions' privacy laws. 
It's really tricky. And we invested a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in parts of this project that had nothing to do with the, the Python code that does the magic itself. But I think that what we're going to see increasingly is that, and I mean, what we know historically is that a multi-center clinical trial is always going to hold water more with the community than a single-centered trial. It's always great when the people who are the inventors of a technology or who are champions of a technology can show how great it is and how awesome the results are in their hands. But once it gets out into the wild and it's in the hand of a user at a different institution who doesn't have a vested interest, then that situation can change. I think, you know, the technologies that you were talking about, these sort of anonymization techniques or data virtualization techniques hold a lot of promise for helping us effectively, rapidly and massively grow the pool of available data to train, validate, and test these sophisticated algorithms. One other thing, Patrick, that is extremely important is the regulatory aspect of these algorithms, right? Like when FDA approves something for clinical use, they need uh, to see validation across different sites or centers and also in different populations. And they also need to be able to see the generalizability of the algorithm to populations where they were not actually tested or it is impossible to test. And that is a huge challenge with these algorithms in, in particular, I feel like compared to a drug development, for example, because the algorithms develop rapidly. FDA approval takes a long time. By the time like an algorithm is developed by one center and if it is going through an FDA process, it is very possible that you can have an updated algorithm with a totally different score from a different center. How do you get all these uh, folks together and work on the same team? So I think once we cross that barrier of data sharing, I think this will bring the teams together and create more robust models rather than competing with each other. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's true that AI research is a bit of a minefield. And anecdotally, I can tell you that I have talked to more than one groups of scientists totally independent of each other who've said, I won't put that term in my grant proposals. If we're going to do something like that, that's great. But we're not going to call it AI. We're going to call it machine learning. And that's kind of a verbal gymnastics situation. And truth be told, one is sort of a subset of the other from a technical standpoint. There's definitely an ick factor, I think, justifiably when you're talking about AI, because I think that we've all seen examples of how in the wrong hands or even in inapt hands, it's easy or it's possible to train these algorithms in a way that entrenches biases, that entrenches not only clinician biases, but societal biases. There's entire branches of research, including professors here at the Information School, the iSchool at University of Washington, who have looked at the ways that poorly trained AI algorithms result in poor decision-making. You know, we want to avoid that at all costs, but I think interdisciplinary collaborations like ours are going to be a leg up to try and make sure that you have people who deeply understand the technical aspects, but who can also have a conversation with someone. It's good to work with someone like you, for me, who understands the fact that it's not easy for me to marshal infinite computational resources at a moment's notice. And likewise, what I hope is true for my lab is that one of my trainees can recognize what the difference between an ECG from someone who's in sinus rhythm versus someone who's in AFib or who's in VTAC or something like that. And I think it's really important to forge those interdisciplinary ties. Yes. 
So Arun, did you want to talk about, you know, where we see this going, especially, you know, we had talked a lot about concept of explainability. And, you know, this is one of the things that you and I have lamented is the fact that in our current work, we haven't been able to deploy some of the recent bells and whistles from the machine learning literature. But this is something that we're hoping to turn towards in the near future. Could you talk about that concept of explainability? Yeah, I can talk about the limitations of the current model as it pertains to a clinician's behavior and trust. And I think you should talk about the explainability itself. When I see an AI-based paper, most of the algorithm development and most of the way the algorithm reaches a particular prediction is a black box. And that is true for many of the papers in the EP literature at this point. The uh, data is fed into the algorithm and a prediction is uh, spit out, but I do not clearly know as a clinician what actually led the algorithm to make that decision and put it in a particular bucket that it decided to put it in. So, and that is a big trust factor for me. So when I try to use these tools for decision-making in critical areas of medicine and where management decisions are going to be based, I want to know what the model is using to make that prediction. And not knowing that creates a certain amount of discomfort. Even if the AUC was great, I would still have my biases towards the algorithm which can explain why it did this compared to an algorithm which which cannot. I think that shows the need for explainability to be built into these models if we are really hoping for clinical use in the future. I have seen that many of the other fields, including computer science and bioengineering, when they're using machine learning models, they have already started deploying explainability and interpretability into their models uh, heavily. Black box models are almost frowned upon in many of the fields at this point. But in a way, our arrhythmia field is kind of nascent and it is just catching up to it. So Patrick, like, what do you think should be our next steps in terms of our collaboration as well as in terms of the field itself? Yeah, I think explainability is a huge priority. And to put things in perspective for people, I think one of the most, I don't know if its if I would call it a harmful perception of the machine learning and AI research field, but I certainly, I think it's a negative stereotype, which is that there's nobody who likes a black box model, let alone the engineers who know nothing about the biomedical literature that they're trying to do research on. Nobody likes a black box model. And so the concept of explainability in machine learning research is once you have the network trained, once you have these algorithms trained to select for very specific features and classify an input into a particular output group. To go back to our very first example that we talk about of numeral classification, you can think of there are three or four different ways to draw each numeral, but some of the things are common, like in a seven, you might have one or two horizontal strokes that make up the seven, and that might be a giveaway for the network. And so you should be able to reconstruct from looking at the weights inside the network, what are the features that drive the model towards making a particular classification decision. I think that trying to deploy that type of analysis in AI applied to cardiac electrophysiology problems should be a huge priority. And, you know, our collaborators on this project at Simula Research Laboratories in Norway have recently started to publish a lot of interesting work in this area of AI explainability in the context of ECG. Looking forward two, three, five, ten years, I like to think that big multi-center consortiums will start to become maybe not the outlier, but the norm when it comes to trying to apply sophisticated machine learning techniques to these large data sets. I like to think that there will be a push towards creating large publicly accessible repositories of de-identified clinical data that are geographically 
diverse and have subjects of diverse ancestry so that we can really have access as a community to means of validating. Once we come up with our own technique, we should have access to a test set that we can say, yes, this is well and truly a good predictor. I think there are all sorts of avenues that could be followed. It's a really exciting time to be working on this type of research. Yes, it is an exciting time and a lot of challenges ahead. We are excited to be a part of this school of researchers working on this. I also want to thank EP Lab Digest for featuring our research in their cover story last month, where we talk about a lot of these issues and how we can overcome these issues in the near future. That is a great discussion that we built into that article, and it could be a great starting point for any researchers trying to get into this field. Absolutely, Arun. And it brings to mind the fact that we had two talented trainees working on that editorial with us. Jacob Mayfield and Vid Yogaswaran. And I think that there's a huge trend. I review a lot of applications from prospective PhD students. You review a lot of applications from prospective clinical fellows. If that process has shown me anything, it's that the next generation of scientists and clinicians are extremely enthusiastic to go down this trajectory of machine learning and artificial intelligence research. We have no problem recruiting people in bioengineering who are absolutely champing at the bit to do this type of research. And so I think it's an exciting time to do it. And I think it's a great way for us to engage with the next generation of researchers who are going to be leading the charge someday. This has been a great discussion, Patrick. Thank you for making the time for this. And uh, thank you, EP Lab Digest, for hosting us. Yeah, thanks to EP Lab Digest. And thanks to you, Arun, for being an amazing interlocutor. This has been awesome. We'd like to thank Dr. Sridhar and Dr. Boyle for joining us today. For more information about EP Lab Digest, please visit eplabdigest.com. Thanks for listening.